the Royal Poinciana Hotel, Flagler's brand-new flagship resort at Palm Beach, was gearing up for its very first winter season in December of 1894. It was a moment he had long been waiting for, when the first big influx of shivering northerners would pile onto his train cars and pour into his dining rooms and pools, flooding his coffers with the first huge surge of tourist dollars. Throughout Florida, the feeling of America's unstoppable progress was palpable as the economy boomed and the citrus farmers prospered. The disaster that no one saw coming was a cold front. It swept down out of the north in the final weeks of the year and brought with it freezing temperatures that had never before been seen. In Orlando, a low of just 18 degrees Fahrenheit, far below freezing, was recorded, while down in bustling West Palm Beach, incorporated only a few weeks prior, the temperature plunged to 24 degrees. Though the cold air dissipated within just a few days, the damage had been done. Throughout Florida, from the Suwannee to Lake Okeechobee, the fruits on the trees, the lifeblood of Florida's emerging economy, fell to the ground dead. Acres upon acres of oranges, grapefruits, lemons, and limes had frozen solid where they hung. And in the days that followed, it became clear that almost the entire year's crop had been lost. There was no fruit to sell. There was no fruit to ship on the railroads. And there would be no injection of agricultural capital into the economy that year. But the worst was yet to come. For a few weeks later, a second cold front rolled through. This one even worse than the first. The St. John's River froze over. Snow fell as far south as Fort Myers. Bark split off the fruit trees from top to bottom. The double whammy of two freezes was particularly cruel for trees that had survived the first wave and begun sprouting delicate new growth were completely vulnerable to the second. This time, the trees themselves were destroyed. Known as the Great Freeze, the winter of 1894 to 1895 brought Florida to its knees. To this day, most of the lows recorded that winter remain the coldest on the record books. Citrus farmers everywhere, many of whom had invested years into their farms, were ruined in a matter of weeks. Even large farms, which could perhaps have weathered the loss of one year's crop, could not possibly recover from the total devastation of acre upon acre of mature groves that would take years to regrow. Up and down the peninsula, woeful farmers surveyed the carnage around them, packed up their things, and left. In the year before the freeze, Florida shipped six million boxes of fruit, in the year after, that output dropped by more than 99%. The collapse of the citrus industry pulled the entire state economy down with it. The exodus of farmers caused whole towns to evaporate. 
seasonal laborers had nowhere to work. Doctors, dentists, bankers, architects, and lawyers watched as business dried up. Traffic disappeared from the railroads and land values plummeted. And of course, all of this was bad news for Flagler, whose rail, land, and tourism holdings suffered this devastating blow right when he was most extended and was only just starting to see returns on his massive Palm Beach investment. But even in the midst of the disaster, stories were emerging that there was one part of Florida that had been spared. The January 25th issue of Jacksonville's The Florida Star bore the headline, No Damaging Freeze at Biscayne Bay and contained the first-hand account of a farmer describing minimal damage in those southerly climes. Down there, a February 15th article in the Indian River Advocate reported, quote, Many crates of tomatoes are being shipped to Key West daily, end quote. Indeed, the single degree of latitude between Palm Beach and Biscayne Bay had meant all the difference sparing Miami from the devastating frost of the cold snap. As the news spread, thousands of shattered Floridians in search of somewhere to go suddenly turned their eyes towards this distant backwater and found their hopes renewed. Welcome to the story of Miami. Episode 21, 1896. Though an unmitigated disaster for Florida, the Great Freeze was the tipping point for Miami and for Julia Tuttle, who wasted no time writing to Flagler that Miami remained unscathed. Just two days after the second freeze, Flagler sent James Ingram back to Biscayne Bay to investigate. Many years later, speaking at a ceremony in Flagler's honor, Ingram recalled the visit. Quote, I found at Fort Lauderdale, at Lemon City, Miami, Coconut Grove, and at Cutler, orange trees, lemon trees, and lime trees blooming or about to bloom without a leaf hurt. End quote. Ingram toured the whole Bay Area and spoke with Tuttle and the Brickles about the prospects. As physical proof to take back to Flagler, Tuttle gave Ingram some fresh orange blossom blooms. He recalled, quote, I hurried to St. Augustine where I called on Mr. Flagler and showed him the orange blossoms, telling him that here was a body of land more than 40 miles long between the Everglades and the Atlantic Ocean absolutely untouched, and that I believed that it would be the home of the citrus industry in the future, because it was immune from devastating freezes. I said, I have also here written proposals from Mrs. Tuttle and Mr. and Mrs. Brickle, inviting you to extend your railroad from Palm Beach to Miami, and offering to share with you their holdings at Miami for a town site. Mr. Flagler looked at me for some minutes in perfect silence. Then he said, How soon can you arrange for me to go to Miami? End quote. 
The story of Tuttle's orange blossoms and their powerful effect on the deliberative mind of Henry Flagler has become a cornerstone of Miami lore. How appropriate for Miami that these delicate flowers should be the decisive argument. In June 1885, Flagler boarded his private train car at St. Augustine and rode it down to Palm Beach. From here, he took a steamer down the newly dredged coastal canal, which had just reached Fort Lauderdale. Then he transferred to a wagon, which carried him down to Little River and Lemon City, where he boarded a sailboat for the final five miles down Biscayne Bay to Fort Dallas. The complexity of reaching the place drove home its ongoing isolation, despite the establishment of the train to Palm Beach only 66 miles away. But, as historian and Miami Herald reporter Nixon Smiley wrote in Yesterday's Miami, quote, Flagler and the members of his party were impressed by the primitive charm of the Bay Area, by the crystal clear water as well as by the green landscape about Fort Dallas and the lofty green coconut palms about the mouth of the river. After traveling through the freeze-deadened countryside from St. Augustine, Miami was to Flagler the equivalent of an oasis. He found flowers blooming in Mrs. Tuttle's garden as the widow of Fort Dallas walked him through her citrus orchard, then in full bloom. End quote. By the end of the first day, Flagler was sold. He hurried back to St. Augustine and got to work finalizing the terms of the deal. The final Miami concept was as follows. In exchange for roughly half of Tuttle and the Brickles' Miami properties, Flagler would extend the railroad to the Miami River. With the rail line would also come a telegraph connection. On the river, he would build a port and dredge a 12-foot channel through the shallow bottom of the bay to Cape Florida, making it navigable to bigger ships for connections to Key West, the Bahamas, Havana, and points beyond. He would pay to survey and plat the streets and parcels of a town on both sides of the river and have it hooked up with waterworks. And, of course, on the river's northern banks, in the heart of it all, he would construct a grand resort to be called the Royal Palm Hotel. The lush green landscape of coconut palms and the world-class sailing and fishing would be sure to attract tourists by the trainload, and the economic boom of tourism and citrus connected by land and sea would draw home buyers and businesses to buy lots and populate the town, where everyone would prosper. Flagler's contract with Tuttle, signed on October 24, 1895, included a solid strip of land abutting the bay and the north bank of the river, the choicest real estate on all of Biscayne Bay. Here, overlooking the mouth of the Miami River, Flagler would build his hotel. But nestled within this solid strip of land, Tuttle reserved for herself the most storied site of all, the 13-acre riverfront of Fort Dallas, her home. And to the north and west, 
The rest of the surrounding 640-acre property was divided evenly between Flagler and Tuttle, in alternating checkerboard blocks to ensure that both parties would benefit equally from the rising land values. Though no copies of Flagler's contract with the Brickles are known to have survived, it was nearly identical. In this case, though, the Miami River itself was a barrier to access on the southern banks, so Flagler threw in a provision to build a bridge connecting both sides. The most critical difference, though, was that the Brickles gave Flagler none of their bayfront property. They reserved not only their large home site at the mouth of the river, but a great swath of pristine hammock stretching a thousand feet back from the bay. The town's south side would include no bayfront parcels, at least not until it suited the Brickles. The complete list of the founders of Miami, then, is Flagler, who supplied the capital, and Julia Tuttle and William and Mary Brickle, who supplied the land. Julia Tuttle is legendary for being the only woman to ever found a major American city. Besides the land, it was also her relentless drive and powerful connections which made the project come to life. But the contributions of the Brickles cannot be overlooked. By this time, they had lived and toiled in Dade County for more than a quarter century. Though they perhaps kept a lower profile than Tuttle, they were no less invested in the area's prosperity. In fact, it was Mary Brickle another woman who had guided the growth of the Brickles' landholdings over the years. And indeed, it was she who, years earlier, had scooped up property spanning both banks of the New River, near the site of old Fort Lauderdale. By 1895, the Brickles had a lot to bargain with, and their refusal to relinquish their best Biscayne Bay waterfront to Flagler was no doubt compensated for when they agreed to split their new river land with him. It is Flagler and William and Mary Brickle, therefore, who hold the title of founders of Fort Lauderdale. All in all, it was a beautifully negotiated deal, a win-win-win by all accounts. On June 21, 1895, Jacksonville's Florida Times Union published the official announcement that Flagler was extending his railway to Biscayne Bay. The news went off like a bomb, ricocheting across the freeze-stricken Florida peninsula and triggering a torrent of people rushing down to Miami by whatever means they could. Citrus farmers, laborers, speculators, merchants, builders, druggists, doctors, dentists, lawyers, preachers, Economic refugees from all walks of life poured in to get a piece of the action. In the woods around Fort Dallas, they threw up tents and lean-tos anywhere space was available. And within weeks, the place was transformed into a tent city. With the railroad still many months away, and hundreds of people, so-called 95ers, squatting on her land, Tuttle scrambled to get out ahead of things, putting laborers to work building a huge three-story barn-like structure to provide lodging. This structure, the Miami Hotel, 
sat immediately west of Tuttle's Fort Dallas home lot. And between that building and her home, she had the trees torn up and cleared to make way for the first avenue of the city, a dirt road running north from the river. Meanwhile, to the north, Flagler got to work acquiring the necessary land grants and railroad rights-of-way for the new extension, opening up the 66-mile route from West Palm Beach to Miami. Workers were soon hacking and hewing a 100-foot-wide path through the wilderness. The process involved three main steps, clearing, grading, and laying track. First, the trees and shrubbery were removed and their roots pried free from the gnarly bedrock. Then a loose gravel was put down and spread out flat and smooth, creating a raised bed to act as a shock absorber and ensure the tracks could properly drain. The crosswise rail ties could then be laid down, to which the rails themselves could finally be secured. The promised telegraph line was also strung on poles alongside the tracks. Along the way, a handful of bridges and earthworks had to be constructed, but the generally flat landscape meant that before long, excellent progress was being made. At the same time, just to the east, the digging of the canal proceeded apace as well, carving a channel south from the new river towards the swampy northern tip of Biscayne Bay. Until this point, Flagler's Railroad had borne the cumbersome name Jacksonville, St. Augustine, and Indian River Railway. In September 1895, the system, now destined to span the full length of the peninsula, was rebranded to the far more marketable name Florida East Coast Railway, or simply the FEC. While the approaching train brought the promise of prosperity for Biscayne Bay, the story of its construction is marred by a dark legacy. Much of the work was carried out with convict labor. This was a widespread practice throughout the South at the time, a spiritual successor to slavery, whereby vague crimes such as vagrancy were used to intimidate the black population and sweep them up into the prison system where they could be leased out by the state for revenue. As historians Kathy Roberts Ford and Brian Bowman write for the Washington Post, quote, The convict lease system in Florida was especially violent. Chains, hounds, whips, sweatboxes, stringing up by the thumbs, these were part of everyday existence in convict camps. Sanitary conditions were widely deplorable and medical attention scant. Prisoners with gruesome injuries and diseases were forced to work despite their conditions. Sexual assault was a constant threat for women caught in the system. Not even children were spared. End quote. For years, Flagler used his influence in Florida where he controlled several prominent papers to whitewash the truth behind his success, maintain his exalted place in Florida history, and preserve the state's pristine reputation for northern tourists. Not until the early 20th century 
would muckraking northern journalists begin to expose this ugly side of Florida's and Miami's success. As the rail and canal pushed south from Palm Beach, the promotion of South Florida real estate kicked into high gear. Between Flagler and the canal company, hundreds of square miles of cheaply acquired land were waiting to be sold for a profit. Railroad engineer James Ingram headed up Flagler's land office, and broker Fred Morse was enlisted to market the vast properties worldwide. Through the ensuing development push, small communities, often made up of only six or eight blocks, popped up around the little FEC stations built along the route. These included the small village of Halland, now Hallandale Beach, and Linton, now part of Delray Beach and Boynton Beach. The community of Modelo was established as a settlement for Danish immigrants. It is now the city of Dania Beach. The prices fetched for land varied greatly. Generally, pine land, being rocky and harder to cultivate, was sold for lower prices, on the order of $12 to $17 an acre. The more fertile, so-called muck lands, sold for around $30, and in some cases as much as $100 per acre. With most of this land having been granted to the companies for free or at bargain rates, the margins on these sales were enormous. But the biggest development on the way down, of course, was on the square mile of brickle property that straddled the New River. Here, surveyor Abner L. Knowlton was enlisted to take the measurements and draw up the master plat of the lots to be sold. The railway passed straight through its center, and the station that was built was named Fort Lauderdale. Its first train pulled in on February 22, 1896. And all the while, down in Miami, the tension and excitement mounted. The surrounding land was selling like hotcakes. John Frederick and E.C. Dearborn opened a real estate office in Coconut Grove, where they ran a booming business brokering prime citrus-growing land. At Fort Dallas, while Tuttle did her best to get development of the town site underway, everyone waited impatiently for Flagler's men to show up and begin large-scale preparations. On March 3, 1896, Flagler's men finally arrived. The team was led by John Sewell from Kissimmee, who had previously worked on construction of the Royal Poinciana and Breakers Hotels in Palm Beach. This advance party was made up of 17 men, five white foremen, and 12 black laborers, all handpicked by Sewell. Sewell's first impression was that he had arrived in the middle of nowhere. I found Miami all woods, he wrote in his memoirs. Tuttle's Miami Hotel was not even finished yet. With its staircases still unbuilt, Rooms on the second floor had to be reached by ladder. Instead, Sewell chose to stay on the rock ledge, a huge steamship that had just been towed into the river to serve as a floating hotel. Photographer J.W. Chamberlain arrived as well. He was present to document the development of the new hotel and town over the coming months, producing an amazing collection of images. 
Sewell's first job was to get the construction of the Royal Palm underway. The crowd celebrated as the first ceremonial shovel of dirt was tossed, and Chamberlain snapped an iconic photo that would immortalize the birth of the city. As the days went on, Sewell and his men, an army of paid black laborers that came to be known as Sewell's Black Artillery, tackled the surrounding area. With bush hooks, grubbing hoes, and even dynamite, they removed a thick swath of ancient mangroves along the bayfront and hacked streets out of the hammock. They battled with the formidable ironwood tree, which was so hard it broke the heads of axes. And fascinatingly, Sewell also wrote the following about another foe they encountered. Quote, I do not know its name, but when the bark was broken and one touched the sap of this, it would poison one and even the fumes of this tree would poison, and the men would suffer untold agony. With some of them, their faces would swell up so that one could not see their eyes. We would handle it like we would a rattlesnake and burn it as quickly as we could get it down. End quote. This sounds suspiciously like the Manchineel tree, the same tree whose poisonous sap is thought to have taken the life of Juan Ponce de Leon hundreds of years earlier. By the end of March, Tuttle's north-south street had been cleared for several blocks. At its foot, the hulking rock ledge floated in the river. And along the street, Tuttle's Miami Hotel and several stores and buildings were nearing completion. These included Frank Budge's hardware store, Frank Duran's meat market, E.L. Brady's grocery store, a drugstore, a candy shop, and Willis Myers's lobby pool and billiards parlor. A member of Sewell's party, James Edward Loomis, opened a general store with his brother, John Newton Loomis, and similarly, John Sewell himself, with his brother, Everest George E.G. Sewell, built the shoe store. Tuttle's lots began to go on sale that month. Flagler, Tuttle, and the Brickles had agreed to include clauses in their deeds that forbade the sale of alcohol. But just a quarter mile away, E.A. Waddell and J.W. Johnson had bought up and subdivided the land immediately to the north of Tuttle's, where they began selling lots in what they called North Miami. These lots contained no prohibition clause, and before long, saloons and brothels began to crop up in what would soon become Miami's first skid row. Not to be confused with today's city of North Miami, this area is today's Omni neighborhood, between the 395, or MacArthur Expressway, and the southern edge of Wynwood. The canal that had been making its way down the coast broke through to Biscayne Bay by January 1896. Flagler himself made a celebratory appearance for the occasion, sailing down the new channel into the bay. It was the completion of a mighty engineering feat, decades in the making, creating what we know today as the Intracoastal Waterway, a sheltered, navigable route up the entire east coast of the United States. Three months later, on April 3, 1896, the railroad reached Lemon City. 
moving at breakneck speed, the final seven miles to the Miami River were finished just four days later. The first train ever to reach Miami arrived to great fanfare on April 13, 1896, bearing Flagler, Ingram, and several other railroad and hotel dignitaries. Practically all the residents of the new town, at least 300 people, turned out to greet the train. As John Loomis recalled, it, quote, puffed its way into the village. The old wood-burning engine, with its big bell top, was spouting smoke, and the whistle and the bell were going full tilt, end quote. The celebratory train returned to St. Augustine that night, but with the tracks now proven, regular freight service began on April 15th. A week later, on April 22nd, regular passenger service began as well. After all this time, Miami was finally connected. Though the town was still barely built out, people and building materials began pouring in on the train, straining every accommodation and service available. Construction of the Royal Palm Hotel gathered swift momentum as did the construction of ever more homes and businesses. The milestones and historic firsts piled up. Without a bank, the Sewell brothers had been keeping everyone's money in a safe in their shoe store. But on May 2nd, the Bank of Biscayne Bay opened, unleashing the awesome power of credit and turbocharging the local economy. Miami's first newspaper, financed by Flagler and ambitiously named the Miami Metropolis, published its first weekly issue on May 15th and predicted that the population would reach 1,000 by June 1st. One article urged the new town to incorporate before August, which would allow the passage and enforcement of ordinances and in particular would allow something to be done about the deteriorating sanitary situation. The removal of excrement, it read, and all kinds of disease-producing products at stated intervals should be rigidly insisted on. Another piece noted that lots on the Brickle side had gone on sale the previous Monday, but it railed against the delay in constructing the promised bridge to that side of the river. Without it, residents had to pay 10 cents to cross on the ferry and fetch their mail, or find out if they even had any at all. The delay of the bridge was a source of frustration to many, not least of whom were the Brickles themselves, who could not possibly compete with Tuttle's sales until buyers could access their lots. The delay of the bridge notwithstanding, Flagler had spared no thought for the new town's necessities. He even arranged for a doctor, James Madison Jackson, to move in and become the community's primary physician. Hailing from Bronson, Florida, where he had been neighbors with the Loomis brothers, Dr. Jackson had been hit hard by the freeze. But now he opened up his practice out of the Sewell's shoe shop and began the legacy of one of the largest hospitals in the United States today, Jackson Memorial Hospital. The Miami spirit is a great thing, Jackson wrote to his wife. It is infectious. By June 9th, Flagler's surveyor, Abner Knowlton, had completed his plat of the new city. A copy of Knowlton's original plat is included on this episode's page 
at storyofmiami.com. Block after block of streets were being cleared and parcels staked out ready for sale. Along the bayfront of Tuttle's land, Biscayne Drive was laid out, a broad waterside thoroughfare that we now know as Biscayne Boulevard. Today, several acres of man-made land lie on its east side, but this curvy boulevard marks the original downtown waterfront. On the main street grid, north-south routes were named avenues and given letters, starting with Avenue A, the first avenue west of Biscayne Drive. The avenue Tuttle had cleared became Avenue D, being the fourth one in, but today we know it simply as Miami Avenue. The east-west routes were named streets, starting with First Street on the town's northern edge. These days, the all-night partygoers of Club Space and Eleven stumble bleary-eyed onto this street, today's North 11th Street, blinking in the sun of the early morning. South of the river, where the Brickles still held the bayfront, today's Brickle Plaza formed the border between the town and the Brickle Hammock. Brickle Plaza is a small street one block inland from the larger Brickle Avenue, which did not yet exist. At the southern edge of the town was another broad thoroughfare, appropriately named Broadway. Today, this wide diagonal street is known as Southwest 15th Road, and roughly sits between the Brickle District and the neighborhood of the roads. Towards the backwoods and the Everglades, the Brickle side of town ended at Avenue M, today's Southwest 8th Avenue in Little Havana. On Tuttle's side, the town ended at Avenue L, today's 7th Avenue in Overtown. Again, if you didn't follow all that, visit storyofmiami.com to see the original map. This original street lettering and numbering system is unfamiliar to us today. It remained in place until 1920, when the city's rapid growth forced the city council to rethink the limitations of this ill-conceived scheme. It was then that First Street, the original northern edge of the city, became today's North 11th Street, and what had been 12th Street, through the heart of downtown, became Flagler Street. It was also then that Avenue D became Miami Avenue. The train tracks entered the north side of the new city and ran down to the river between avenues E and F. Though the tracks did not yet cross the river, the right-of-way continued through the Brickle side of town, unobstructed and ready for a future extension. Today, this same rail corridor still carries FEC and commuter traffic entering the city towards the central station and the port. It is also the route used by the Metro Rail as it runs through downtown and Brickle. If you stand on the Brickle Avenue Bridge today and look west, up the river, towards the Miami Avenue Bridge, it is the waterfront to your right between these two bridges that was held by Julia Tuttle for her home. That is where the buildings of Fort Dallas stood, and that is where Julia Tuttle lived until she died. At the time of this recording, it is occupied by a Hyatt Hotel, the James L. Knight Center, and a small office building. The Riverwalk Metro Mover stop is also on the property, 
as well as the tiny Fort Dallas Park, the last remaining indication of this site's monumental place in Miami's history. If you then turn around and face east towards the ocean, to your left, beneath two blocks of towering skyscrapers, is the original site of the Royal Palm Hotel. And to your right, practically on top of the ancient Miami Circle, is the place where the Brickles had their home. In all, two square miles containing more than 200 blocks were laid out for the new town, with a typical block containing 20 parcels. Thousands of individual lots were therefore ready to be sold, waiting to sprout what so many now foresaw as a metropolis. Of course, as was the American custom in those days, only the property on the far side of the tracks was available to Miami's black residents, including many who took part in constructing Flagler's Hotel and the rest of the city. The effects of this segregationist policy will leave a major impression on the fabric of the city throughout its history. With the population booming and the economy taking off, it was finally time to incorporate. To prepare for the vote, one item to be deliberated was the proposed boundaries of the new municipality. The Reverend Caldwell argued that the so-called wet area of North Miami should be included so that its seedy elements could be controlled. But Flagler and Tuttle were both opposed, so the idea was rejected. Miami would be a completely dry town and encompass only the Tuttle and Brickell areas. Another item was the question of what to name the new town. A great many voters wanted to name it Flagler, in honor of the giant figure who had built it. But on this matter, Flagler himself weighed in, insisting that his new resort town keep the rustic character of its historic name, Miami. With these questions sorted out, the incorporation meeting was scheduled for July 28, 1896. On the appointed afternoon, some 344 voters assembled in the upstairs room of the lobby, pool, and billiards parlor, the largest room in town. All were men, as women's suffrage was still a ways away. Nearly half the voters, roughly 162, were black, a rare occurrence in the South during this period. They were comprised mostly of Sewell's black artillery, brought in to ensure Flagler's interests held sway at the meeting. At 2 p.m., the meeting was called to order, and the votes began. By law, 25 votes were required to incorporate a town, while 300 were necessary to create a city. With over 300 voters present, the city of Miami was unanimously voted into existence leading to one of its oldest nicknames, the city that was never a town. Following this, the city seal was agreed upon, bearing the image of a royal palm tree and the inscription incorporated 1896, the seal has remained virtually unchanged ever since. The final order of business was the election of the first mayor and seven city aldermen, the birth of Miami government. 
Already, frontier politics was giving way to powerful political factions. Though opposed by a diverse group of independent citizens, Flagler's company men held all the power. The head of Flagler's Fort Dallas Land Company, 26-year-old John B. Riley, won the mayoral vote in a landslide, and several other Flagler men were elected aldermen. At the end of the meeting, three cheers were raised for the new city, and a series of impassioned speeches stretched late into the night. The next morning, news of the vote was wired to Henry Flagler. Telegram received, he wrote back. I congratulate the citizens of Miami upon the harmony which marked the election yesterday and trust that the auspicious beginning will result in future prosperity, which will equal the most sanguine expectation of the people of the new city. Signed, Henry M. Flagler. Why is there a city here? Virtually every other major city in America was well established by 1896, begotten by the forces of trade and travel that pressed people together at the shore of a deep harbor, the foot of a mountain pass, or the edge of a rich field of soil or minerals. With none of these present, what is it that brought people here? We put forth one thought for your consideration that the fundamental resource that Miami has to offer is a stunning natural beauty, a comfortable climate beside warm waters, a lifestyle to which no New Yorker, Chicagoan, or San Franciscan can lay claim. It was this that drew Fitzpatrick and English, Gleason, Monroe, and the Peacocks. And it was this that drew the Brickles and Julia Tuttle. In the face of continuing change and the looming specter of a rising sea, it is this, our natural environment, that we must cherish most and work most diligently to hold on to. It was this, too, that brought Henry Flagler and the countless shivering visitors his millions will soon summon to our sunny shores. And here we suggest the other answer to the mystery of Miami, that the city is a monument to the decadence of the Gilded Age and the incredible symbiosis of money and technology that lies at the heart of American capitalism. Here was a place that, time and again, had chewed up and spit out each attempt to wrest it into submission a place that, situated at a crossroads of a steadily shrinking world, had remained, nevertheless, far away from it. It was technology and the incredible wealth it generated that gave rise to the earthquake of social and economic change that poured millions into the pockets of one man. And it was technology that that man bought with his money laying hundreds of miles of steel through the wilderness and finally throwing open to the world the impenetrable hideout of Biscayne Bay. As Arva Moore Parks writes in Miami, the Magic City, quote, 
the infant city of Miami was the remarkable progeny of remarkable parents. It did not develop slowly like other cities. It arrived in a railroad car, howling and kicking. End quote. It's a striking juxtaposition, nature and technology, two forces which for the century that follows will seem to be at odds. Today, it is the same forces that made Miami possible which now threaten its very existence. We offer our belief that nature and technology need not be in conflict, that we are simply still getting the hang of things. We are hopeful that a renewed interest in technology for clean energy, for sustainable development, for a sparkling metropolis that grows in harmony with our trees, our mangroves, our river of grass, our birds and our fish, will not only safeguard our most valuable asset, but usher in a new chapter of economic prosperity for Miami, the city of the future. July 28th, 1896. The day Miami was born. It was a singular moment of change. A small town of a few dirt streets and wooden buildings buzzed with life. The air was filled with the clamor of saws and hammers and the fervent chatter of buoyant men and women eagerly making plans to build something together. The clang and whistle of the locomotive daily heralded their growing numbers. On the shores of the bay, the graceful frame of the Royal Palm Hotel rose high into the air. Yet in all directions, the past remained. Panthers prowled, and rattlesnakes slithered through the jungles of the Brickle Hammock. Alligators swam in the river. A vast wilderness stretched in every direction. But even now, these ancient acres were being daily bought and sold and gambled on. In the dense woods of the Egan Donation, vaulted canopies of noble oak were being felled, and a rickety tent city was giving way to straight lines and right angles. Perhaps there is no more potent symbol of the moment than the old Tequesta burial mound at the mouth of the river at Fort Dallas. The historic earthwork has been there with us quietly throughout the centuries of our story so far. The final resting place not only of those original natives, but later of Seminoles, Spaniards, and even Americans, such as Captain Russell, killed in the Second Seminole War. The mound is visible in one of Chamberlain's photographs, behind John Sewell and his wheelbarrow-wielding crew, preparing to make way for the new hotel. Their first order of business was the leveling of this priceless artifact, and when they carried out the act, Sewell reported, between 50 and 60 skeletons were uncovered. He wrote that he gave several bones away as souvenirs, but the rest were dumped into a hole somewhere, the whereabouts of which nobody knows. In the century and more that has passed since then, it has remained difficult to hold on to our history 
in the face of relentless change. It is hard to remember all the many events that have brought us all together. Now, after an epoch of obscurity, a fire hose of raw capital wielded by a single man had been turned on Biscayne Bay, pumping vast sums of monopoly money from the oil fields of Pennsylvania and the refineries of the Cuyahoga Valley, the investments of the titan Henry Flagler poured over the once quiet South Florida landscape and fertilized the land of his beneficiaries, Tuttle, the Brickles, and countless more, who bore witness to the beginnings of a transformation unlike any the world had ever seen. Born into the dawn of a new century, driven by the engines of an exhilarating new world, the city of Miami was to be a bold demonstration, a spectacular exhibition of America's technological might, its power to conquer nature, to conjure enormous wealth out of the wilderness, and to sow the earth with civilization, like magic.